millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. ready and there will be no encore welcome to episode 301 and it's a brand new century so naturally enough i've made some changes craig fitzpatrick is no longer on the show for this week he has gone to barcelona i believe he is milling around the place at the moment in a grateful dead t-shirt looking all kinds of cool and a heavy wool overcoat as well with his hood up like the maniac that he is uh he'll be back next week and we look forward to hearing from him but of course uh we keep on moving and we go to our number one super sub straight off the bench she is of course no encore is very own angel of the lanes it's zara hederman hello um that's an introduction i didn't expect uh thank you i love podcasts i've been on this podcast more than three times um <laughs> for anyone who has not watched the frank mccourt jerry hannon video that's going to make absolutely no sense but um iconic moment i think in irish television history would you agree david I would, yeah. Uh, I've I've enjoyed that clip many a time over the last year or so. Got me through lockdown, I would say. And so has making this show, of course. Last week was our 300th episode. Uh, we'd call them on. We got a lot of nice feedback as well from a lot of people who've been with us for a long time. And I want to say a sincere and huge thank you to everyone who listens to the show and who reached out. Everyone who listens every week, people who support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash noancore if you want to do that. And, you know, throw us the price of a pint or whatever uh, to help us keep the lights on. It's always, always uh, gratefully received. And yeah, there was just a very, very nice kind of outpouring. Uh, like last week, as we kind of ended the show off the cuff, I, I, I thanked a lot of people who've, who've been involved in the show. And I realized that I forgot to thank someone uh, extremely important. Uh, I Very, very bad of me. And I've all week I've been waiting to try and rectify this problem of mine. Um, Bantam, 
who has provided us with our music for the show for such a long time. The music that you hear every single week on this podcast is a song called Move by an artist from Cork named Bantam, uh, known to his friends as Rory. He's an incredible musician, I think one of Ireland's most innovative producers and maybe the most humble human being walking this island. So uh, I felt terrible when I was like, oh fuck, how did I forget this? Because sometimes people message me and are like, what's the song? What's the amazing song that opens the show? The song is Move, the artist is Bantam, no encore would literally not sound the same without him. So please add his name to the list of people who've helped us out. And something else I kind of said last week, I kind of put it up on Instagram. I just said that like since doing the show, like, I mean, I started the show with two good friends and I've had the chance to make many more great friends along the way because of the show. Sonic Architect Adam is here this week being one of them and Zara Hedeman being here. Although, you know, I guess we're occasional rivals, occasional enemies. How are you at the moment, Sarah? How's everything been with you since you were last on the show? Jesus, again, some some intro into a question, David. Um, I'm good. Um, I've been watching a lot of spooky films because, of course, it's October. Uh, it's Spooktober. Sorry, excuse me. Um, so, yeah, I've been doing that. I've been busy away doing all my usual stuff. Um, yeah, nothing really outlandishly new to update listeners with um was dog sitting probably since I last saw you on zoom and spoke to you listeners (laughs) um that was fun but yeah. well, that's good. Like you're, you're you're staying out of trouble. It's good that you mentioned scary movies because that ties into this week's theme. Our top five this week is top five horror movie scores. So we're looking at music that make horror films that a little bit more terrifying. That's our top five later in the show. Both Zara and I are coming at it from a, a positive point of view. Our favourites. There's no trashing this week. No. And I'm very much looking forward to that one. We'll also be reviewing the new album from Self Esteem. It's been getting a lot of critical acclaim. That's coming up later in the show. Uh, before we move on, a quick shout out for Sonic Sonic Architect Adam's side project before the encore there is a new episode out on the podcast feed right now if you have yet to hear it Adam sits down with Na McGonagall of Windmill Lane Studios in Dublin in the studio itself for an incredible chat about the history of the studio and I guess the kind of the difference between old ways of recording and new ways, all that kind of stuff. Adam was a kid at Christmas while he was on that episode. I could hear him smiling throughout the whole thing, despite not being in there. So go and check that out. Adam is doing incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's time to move on with the show. So Adam, if you will, please. Hey, you heard about the good news? With thanks to Ye for tuning us in there this week. Uh, Zara, we'll start with a minor story, but I think it's kind of major in the sense that a year ago or so on this show, maybe a little over a year, you and I reviewed the album Ultramano Mm. by the band Idols. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly... You were very not a fan. No. If that even makes grammatical sense. You, you, uh, you're you not a fan of this band. You weren't a fan of that album. I think you were corrosive and caustic in your, in your appraisal. Mm. And I just want to know how you feel about their frontman, Joe Talbot, doing a new interview ahead of a new album, saying that he thinks that that record, quote unquote, translated badly due to the absence of live music. He said, I think that album translated badly as a home listening device. The whole point of that record was to build a narrative with our audience. The album itself was a caricature of what people thought of us. And we wanted to kind of twist that up and then burn that effigy. So we would start with this new album that they're doing. Um, Yes. So uh, does he have a point or is this just waffle? Um, I think that this is like an example of um, the musician throwing the instruments out of the tour bus or lack thereof because they couldn't go on tour. Um, I think this is absolute utter nonsense when I saw this headline the other day um, saying that it translated badly as a home listening device. 
Like, that is the stupidest thing I think I've heard in a long time. And also when I was listening to it, there was a number of things that kind of popped into my mind. One, is this some kind of like damage control for like poor sales or poor, um, poor reflection on what the album brought back to say their management and their label, what they had kind of set targets for to be extremely clinical about it. Um, Then I also thought that this really like for Joe Talbot to say, this and that like the album was hurt because of the lack of live arena shows and so I thought that it kind of diminished his value of his fan base and listeners of that album because to me yes seeing a live show can definitely change the context of hearing an album and of hearing songs that um, are new from a band that you haven't heard for say since previous album cycles but I did just thought it demeaned and discredited his fan base by saying that they perhaps don't have the capacity to enjoy the album as a singular audio experience, that it has to be spoon fed to them by a visual, more visceral experience um, and I also think that him saying the album itself was a caricature of what people thought of us I think that that is definitely him you know reviewers living rent free in his head about what they have said about the album and specifically probably about him as a frontman. man um, what did you make of it David? I thought I mean like I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying at the same time I would give him a, a little bit of, of the benefit of the doubt in as much as at least idols have established a reputation of being a particularly use the word visceral live act and that seems to be the case I've yet to see them in the live arena but from what I can tell it is a very kind of euphoric experience for both band and audience um, however yeah there's definitely deflection here and it wasn't a great album mm. um, I liked it more than you did but I didn't really go back to it after that I will say I am looking forward to the new one and and people who, if you want to hear our latest episode of No Oxcord, it's our recommends corner, Patreon only. So patreon.com slash I did gush quite a bit on there in the latest episode about their current single, uh, The Beachland Ballroom, uh, which I think is an incredible song. Um, but look, it remains to be seen. And in the meantime, what we'll do is we'll, we'll park this. Maybe Zara will come back for that review. Who knows? But we'll move on to a, a bigger live arena and, and certainly bigger capacities. Adele has announced two shows at Hyde Park next year. Um, she has left fans fuming, apparently, over the hefty price it will cost to see her perform on those two nights. So um, the ticket prices for these shows are uh, wild, I would say, Zara. So yeah. she's playing on the 1st and 2nd of July next summer. And here are the prices if you want to go and see the gig in, in, in British pounds sterling. General admission will cost you just over £90. Primary entry, don't know what that means, no. uh, is £112. Gold, £274. If you want the diamond VIP experience, £380. If you want the VIP terrace, that's £435. And the ultimate bar, diamond and ultimate terrace experience is in fact £579.95. So <laughs> that's a lot of money, Zara. Yeah, when I was also looking at the breakdown and the tears of the so-called uh, experience that you're getting. I had a number of things just swirling around in my head. One was, why is Diamond VIP, which is £379.95, 
cheaper than just V. Oh, sorry, I'm just after Twitch in there. The VIP Terrace, because Terrace, yeah. yeah. So I saw Diamond VIP, and I was like, oh, surely that's a bit more elite. Um, like, Zara, you don't get more elite than a terrace. This is how it works, you know. Yeah. But is the sound quality, what's that going to be like at a terrace in Hyde Park? I just think this Adele thing, I mean, like, I, like, I can't oh, take sorry, credit for this also, gag. You missed the most expensive one. Did I? 579 pounds? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's yeah, just rounded up ultimate, to That's pounds. Ultimate sorry. Terrace, which sounds sorry. like a fucking insane nightclub or yeah, something. Yeah, no, I would not like that. Um, I can't take credit for this gag. People are already making it on Twitter, but like, this is Adele essentially crowdfunding her divorce uh, uh, for, like, through her fans, who of course are delighted and will pay and these will sell no problem. Um... Yeah, I mean, there's just something... Uh, this isn't new. I mean, we can't just say only Adele does this. I mean, for example, like, I went to see Metallica in Paris as part of like, the, you know, I, I got the press pass to go to that thing. But what I was experiencing probably would have cost someone else an awful lot of money. So this isn't anything new. Massive mm-hmm. bands do it all the time, whether it's a meet and greet, whether it's, you know, diamond terrace packages or whatever. Um, whatever happened to just go in the gig, you know, mm-hmm. as gigs come back, Zara, have you ever like gone in for the, like the over the top experience? I mean, like, do you think that this is too much or is it just fine? If people are going to pay it, well, then who cares? What do you think? Um, well, when I was reading through this story earlier and like just writing down some kind of notes beside it, one of them was just, sickening beside all of the uh, prices to be honest um i've never paid through the roof for an experience like this i've never gone in for the um the vip meet and greet ticket the idea of like that just kind of sends me a bit uh, cold and it would also just make me feel really anxious for a number of reasons like paying to meet someone that like you would obviously have to really admire a lot if you're going to fork out money to pay to meet them but then in the back of my mind I think I would be really self-conscious about the fact that they know that I've paid top dollar to meet them um I much prefer bumping into my music musicians and artists uh you know at the merch table or on the street outside the venue after the gig um, in the pub you know like like exactly, like, in, exactly. Like, like in an emotional state like that time on how Hamilton Lighthouser in the workman's. Oh God. That was a good time. Let me ask you this. Uh, anyone who knows Zara, who follows Zara on Twitter will know that Zara is on a is on a, a lengthy campaign to try and get Destroyer back to Dublin. Yeah. If yeah. Destroyer came back and the only ticket available was a 400 euro meet and greet ticket for Dan Behar, would you pay it? Uh, no. Whoa, not. I thought you would have said yes. I'm actually no, genuinely... Um, You'd use your industry connections to just kind of finagle your way in probably, but you know. 400 euro is a lot of money like it's the first thing I thought of and I'm not saying um, I don't know Destroyer or Adele that's the real oh, question oh Destroyer everyday I would go Ultimate Terrace for Destroyer yeah Okay. Why not? Sure. I just have to know to save up for a couple of months beforehand. The most Um, important thing I think, though, is no matter what gig you're attending, is to have some degree of etiquette. I mean, look, some shows can get out of hand. There are hardcore shows in which audience members are actually invited to participate. But generally, you know, you want to have that kind of magical barrier between artist and audience, but it doesn't always go that way. Uh, Maroon 5 played a show there. Uh, at the Hollywood Bowl last weekend and during this a fan a young woman jumped on stage and grabbed frontman Adam Levine security quickly pulled her away Uh, Levine froze in the middle of the song which is understandable uh, visibly mouthing the word fuck and shaking himself off before resuming the performance now some fans criticised his reaction to this after video went viral on TikTok leading the singer to release a statement in which he said I want to address this Uh, I've always been someone that loves respects worships our fans without them 
them, we don't have a job. I say that all the time to our fans. To think that anyone would believe that I thought that they were beneath us or less than us makes my stomach turn. It's just not who I am. It's not who I've ever been. So I need you guys to know I was really startled. And sometimes when you're startled, you have to shake it off and move on because I'm doing my job up there. It's what I pride myself on. So I need to let you guys know what my heart is. And my heart is that connection that exists between the band performing on stage and the fans. I hope we can all understand that. Now, that is the kind of um, excessively eloquent statement I would expect from the frontman of Maroon 5. But the ultimate point here is it's not okay to get on stage and grab them. though. No. Like, what the fuck? That's very terrifying. And especially when I was reading this, I actually, for the first and probably last time in my life, I felt bad for Adam Levine because especially in the last, well, even since like, I don't know, the 70s and 60s, like the threat of like fans just invading your personal space. You don't know if they have a weapon or what they're going to do to you, what their intention is. You don't know if there's someone who hates your music, hates your opinions on certain things or else loves your music and thinks that you are like God's gift to music. Um, so this, I when I was reading it, it actually really kind of unsettled me. I was like, God, like that must be such a terrifying situation to be in. Because as he said in in his statement there, he's just doing his job. Um, his He's violated like doing that. That's obviously going to really shake you up. Um, so yeah, I think it's maybe unfair for fans. Now, I haven't seen the video, so I don't know exactly what his what the visual um, of his reaction was like. If he looked like he was kind of in disgust or like, oh, this person he was, touched me. He, he was spooked. I mean, like, like this yeah. is the thing. I mean, it's a case of, you know, I think ultimately to try and infer anything beyond shock is mm. is kind of bizarre but this is you know like the weird parasocial relationships that we see especially with younger fans and pop acts and so on but like there are there are high profile incidences of st- of stuff like this going horrifically wrong like Dimebag mm. Daryl of course was shot dead on stage ex-Pantera guitarist and when he was playing for Damage Plan there are other incidences as well like it's it's not like it's one of those things where like oh it's only a hysterical thing to suggest that maybe someone could kill somebody until it fucking happens and mm. I think you know you go to a gig you go to a show and there is that kind of weird contract that you have between person on stage and punter and sometimes the lines blur and like yeah like you know we've all gotten hammered at a gig and been like you know like maybe taking leave of our senses but at the same time never happened to me i'm sure it never has um yeah basically just you know respect people at gigs including mm. people in the crowd essentially and i suppose actually there's that kind of added aspect to it like where there's been 18 months of being told to maintain your distance from people and that is because they potentially could have coronavirus so there is that factor as well why Adam Levine was probably quite taken aback because that has just become so ingrained and you're like oh do I have COVID now or I don't know yeah, if I was if I was a, a high profile pop star with a budget, I'd install like a steel cage between me and the, <laughs> and the crowd. That's what I would do. Like 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 an old school WWF blue wrestling cage. I'd be like, it's art, and also I feel very safe. Uh, right, Zara. One of the stories mm-hmm. you picked out for us this week: uh, Interpol and David Lynch not together at last because they were together in a weird way before ten years mm-hmm. ago, but they're back in a very modern way. Can you explain what this is? I can. Um, So Interpol um, have released their 2011 collaboration with David Lynch as an NFT. Um, The New York band, they joined forces with um, Lynch, known for Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive, which turned 20 recently. Um, 
for their 2011 Coachella performance, which they combined Lynch's I Touch a Red Button Man short film with their 2010 single Lights from their self-titled album from the same year. And now... Interpol fans out there can own a piece of work um, as a limited series of eight NFTs um, through the new David Lynch and Interpol website. David, did you go on to that today? Uh, no, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, didn't I don't like the NFT thing. And there's a, like there's a, an element here as well where Dan uh, Paul Banks, sorry, uh, released a statement basically saying like, you know, hyping this up and stuff. And he said, in the spirit of fandom, we're glad to reveal that one of the eight NFTs will go to fans for free. It's like, <laughs> fuck. Like, as far as I'm aware, like these are like planet killing, uh, weird crypto-esque kind of, I, I, I want the word NFT to go away. Like, yeah, I really do. <laughs> I have no time for it whatsoever. But technically, three words. Oh, yeah. yeah sorry. Type. The acronym, I should say. <laughs> Zara, Zara was right to correct me. I got out of Thank line you. there. But listen, <laughs> speaking of cool rock bands doing cool modern things, I mentioned TikTok earlier on, a platform I will never go near because I'm in my mid-30s. But like, essentially... Um, Mid-30s, yes, Sarah. Uh, Led Zeppelin have become the latest band to join TikTok, the latest kind of old-school, legendary rock band to join TikTok. Their full discography is now available for users to soundtrack their posts with, with new account promises, Led Zeppelin-themed artwork, graphics, archive, live performances, and more. They joined the likes of The Beatles and ABBA in joining mm-hmm. TikTok in 2021. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I mean, just as proof that TikTok is, in fact... The big thing at the moment, uh, it officially passed YouTube for average watch time among users in the UK and the US last month. Uh, again, like, I'm, I'm very wary of turning into Grandpa Simpson now and being like, oh, whatever. But like, I don't know, Led Zeppelin on TikTok, just something like it just it, it feels too brand, too synergy, yeah. too company meeting to me. Like, I don't like yeah. it. Yeah, it feels very um, not like not brass eye but like it feels like something Matt Berry would like come up with in like um one of his many shows that he's in like oh you need to be on TikTok um I just love though the the image of like TikTok users saying using Stairway to Heaven or like rain song to uh, soundtrack their TikToks and what they would do to them uh, or do to them. Um, Do you have a particular favourite Led Zeppelin song, David, that you would go straight to if you were a TikToker? Uh, Cashmere, I'd say. Because remember on the show recently, I I mentioned that Come With Me by Puff Daddy featuring Jimmy Page. And then uh, I put that in my top five like samples or whatever. And then if if I recall correctly, David Tapley of Tandem Felix fame was straight on to me saying like, not a sample, bro. And I was like, all right, cheers, man. Why don't you do a top five Tapley, you know? Yeah, that's right. Come and get me. Uh, essentially, though, I do know that David Tapley is a big fan of the 70s, despite mm-hmm. not being from the 70s and mm-hmm. that kind of aesthetic. I think you're of a similar sentiment as well. Uh, there's a new film coming, though, which is set in that time of uh, uh, of life, I do believe. It's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Licorice Pizza. Horrendous title. Uh, in the film, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, Cooper, is in this movie, as is... Alana Heim of the band Heim. She appears to be the co-lead and she has done a interview describing the project as a huge growing experience and basically saying like, you know, my two older siblings have carried me through life. So it was jarring to be like, they can't get me out of this one. I love uh, that quote so much. <laughs> it's it's so good. funny. I have like a note just beside us, just like, what does she blame them for within uh, Heim? Like I just had like these images of like something going wrong or like, 
them getting a, a negative review or something like that or they're five minutes late for stage time and it's just um Alana like mm, sorry not me there's the other two it's like yeah, they Why seem say like very wholesome people. Um, she said that she had to show up and said every day, know what I was doing and hold my own, and that she got on very well with Paul Thomas Anderson. I never in my life thought I would be in a movie. Now, he's a very selective director, so she mm. must have some chops in front of the camera. Uh, how do you feel about his films? And is she like, like, do you think this is stunt casting, or are you just genuinely curious about it? Um, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, last year I went through quite actually a few on a rewatch. Um, and actually a first time watch. Um, so like say Magnolia, absolutely love that film. That is PTA, isn't it? It is indeed. It is. Okay, good. Just wanted to double check there. Yeah, just testing uh, me, that's all. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I absolutely loved Magnolia. Um, the Master watched for the first time. Obviously There Will Be Blood is incredible. Um, and I always think that he has great actors, um, especially in those like big ensemble films. Um, and I was really, really shocked when I saw that um, Alana Heim had been cast in this purely because I didn't know that she had acted or had any acting experience. Obviously, she has um, a relationship with Anderson and that he's directed a few music videos for her band. Um obviously as well would be really interested to see Cooper Hoffman's performance in the film because Philip Seymour Hoffman such an incredible actor and such a shame that we'll never see him take on another big role especially as he was getting into a very interesting kind of age bracket of characters that he could have portrayed and um, that's really sad but I'm really excited to see Cooper as you're saying I really don't like the name of the film I think it's a bit <laughs> No pun intended. I was going to say, I think it's a bit cheesy, but actually it's a bit sour, I guess, because licorice is quite sour. Nice. Um, have you, is there a trailer? There is a trailer. This? There was a trailer um, out about a month ago. It didn't blow me away, but um, okay. I'll, I'll reserve judgment. I mean, like, like I generally like the work of PTA. I hated mm. The Master. Uh, I love Magnolia. Um, Boogie Nights is obviously a classic. Mm. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. Hopefully it'll be good. Um, mm. She does finish up here by saying, she says, when we finished shooting, I told Paul, you saw a side of me that I'd always hoped would come out one day, finding my independence, doing something on my own, and you brought it out of me years before I was ready to do it. Now, that sounds to me, Zara, like a woman who's found her self-esteem. Now, oh, as a matter of fact, there's another woman who's found her self-esteem. She's called Self-Esteem. Her second album's called Prioritize Pleasure, and it sounds a bit like this. Absolute Belter by the name of How Can I Help You by an artist by the name of Self Esteem who's been getting a lot of critical acclaim over the last seven days or so. We don't have a Craig here this week for a primer, but we do have a Zara. Take it away. Yeah, so as you were saying there, Dave, um, I guess if you've never come to Rebecca Lucy Taylor, who is the name behind the self-esteem moniker, you might have seen or become aware of the self-esteem name just through uh, publications, newspapers last week sharing their reviews, um, the likes of The Guardian, DIY Magazine, The 45, The Line of the Best Fit. They were amongst um, some of the big heavy hitters that awarded the album perfect score of either five stars or 10 out of 10. 
Elsewhere, Jude Rogers, um, an excellent writer for The Quietest, she wrote um, an incredible review of the album too. But to kind of rewind a little bit to give some context into who Rebecca Lucy Taylor is, she is a multi-instrumentalist from Rotherham. Um, She was originally from the indie folk duo Slow Slow Club, who were together for a 10-year period uh, between kind of 2007 to 2017. Over there, um, 10 Year, they collaborated with actually some really interesting people and um, the likes of say Sweet Baboo who plays with Kate LeBond sometimes and is a great musician in his own right Fife Dangerfield from the Guillemots and also Colin Elliott who has produced with uh, Richard Hawley and um, that band disbanded in 2017 and I think aptly their closing album was called One Day All of This Won't Matter Anymore Shortly afterwards, um, she switched things up. She chose the self-esteem name, which is to represent her process of building her confidence as someone um, in their 20s who had to navigate the music industry. She released her debut album, Compliments Please, in 2019. And I just want to read out the opening, maybe two sentences uh, from that album on a track called Feelings. So that album opens with the lines, I'm saying that you don't want to quit music. It's just that you want to be somewhere. And a lot of times that's what happens when you're in a band. When you're in a band, everybody really doesn't want the same thing you want. And so you keep on doing the same old thing and other people like doing, but that you're trying to go up further. And so you got to, you have to make a decision and not worry about hurting somebody's feelings. That kind of um, unreserved and unapologetic honesty is carried through to prioritise pleasure, which is the album we're talking about today. In it, um, I personally thought listening to it, it was a very important album to come out in 2021. Um, It comes as a presentation of a very strong voice um, talking about being a woman, navigating the struggles that come with it, but also celebrating and being very proud to be a woman. Um, But also with that, the kind of the struggles, unfortunately, that um, kind of come arm in arm with that, be it abuse or uh, criticisms on women in general for sexuality and also for say um, some of the sexual violence um, and violence that has occurred towards women in the last year Um, you know thinking a lot of Sarah Everard and Sabina Nasa in the UK especially we had albums from Little Sims Joy Crooks Billie Eilish George Smith who all had these very strong messages that really deal with these um, themes and Rebecca Lucy Taylor does that I think very boldly and very warmly and she's funny she's extremely engaging and I really enjoyed this I thought her voice was very strong both in timbre and in message production wise I mean you heard there Black Skinhead is obviously unavoidable as a reference her album is peppered with so many different kind of um, likenesses to other artists, be it Kate Bush, uh, Sugar Babes, bizarrely at some t- points, Calvin Harris. Um, but yeah, what did you make of that, David? I'll let you kind of take the mic now. Yeah, I mean, like the, it, it's extremely difficult, uh, <laughs> particularly as a man, to come back onto the mic now and say that I didn't love it. Um, I do agree with you. I think it's it's a very important album for now, uh, important album of the moment. And I think that 
a lot of what is attractive about her as an artist is her fearlessness really um and, and like that track there that we played i love that track not to keep plugging the fucking patreon but like on no ox chord the month before i picked that track and i you know i was very much like i'm really excited about this album uh Nyla nine wrote a very good piece like saying that she's the pop star we need right now around that time and i've been waiting for this record um and i think a combination of maybe my own hype and then a combination of probably seeing all those five star reviews first thing on the friday morning before i got to it may have impacted a little bit at the same time while I agree that uh, she is the pop star we need right now, I think we need an absolute fearless person who's been through the industry. I think she's 34 now. Mm. Age doesn't matter, but the fact that she has experience of the industry and experience of like, you know, pitfalls and also people trying to make her something that she's not. And she's rebelling against that like quite strongly. And interview wise, like she did an interview with the enemy the there a few months ago, which is absolutely brilliant and everybody should read it. Uh, I think she's, she is a voice. She is a personality. She's a power and all that is great. But, on a musical, full-on, reviewing the album level, I was disappointed. I really, really was. I thought it was a bit kind of misshapen. I thought it was a bit lost at times. Um, it didn't really grab me in the way that I thought it would. Um, like, it opens up with a track called I'm Fine, which is a very good song, and it ends with, like, I guess, a recording of her and her mates or something and talking about... Uh, stuff you referenced there which obviously is so timely stuff about like protecting yourself and like you know she says like you know I think it's her who says it maybe it's one of her mates but uh, the, 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 the line is that like uh, if a man comes at me and is making me uncomfortable, I bark like a dog because mm. there's nothing more terrifying to a man than a woman or a woman who he thinks is fucking deranged. Um, and right away there, I was like, OK, wow, fuck Like you're setting the tone here. You're, you're setting like a real narrative and it's going to be you know, really con confrontational and it's going to be like really kind of totemic, maybe possibly. And then I think it kind of just evolves into songs, you know, like, mm. like kind of different types of songs that are all a bit kind of like not really stitched together in the way that I thought it might be. And by the time it gets to the closer, just kids, I am bored. And I do think it's a bit kind of like, here's a choral outro and it's like, oh, okay. Um, and now, I mean, like, I read, like, I recognize that I'm, I'm in the minority here. I've been seeing across the week people just fucking raving about this record. And I mean, I hate to be the broken record that I am becoming, but I have to wonder if this is yet another example of my big bugbear of people taking the personality and her personality is so shining mm. and just like, let's run with the fucking personality. She rules. She is the moment. And we are at a time, especially in the UK, obviously it's a worldwide thing. It's not just the last year. It's, it's, it's an ongoing problem and it will probably never go away, unfortunately, but there is of course repellent, violent misogyny in the world, no matter you know, whatever your status or station, uh, and it does happen and murders happen and horrible shit happens. And it's awful. Um, and I think it's obviously brave for a pop star or, you know, a, a considered artist to confront this in the way that they're doing so. But I have to wonder if all of these things, all these societal elements kind of amplify, let's put this person at the top. And yeah, for sure. Let's put her at the top in terms of her ability and her fearlessness. But as a record... I just thought it was kind of half-baked. And, you know, what can you do? Interesting. Um, yeah, I'd have to disagree with quite a lot of what you said there. Um, I think that there is a really cohesive kind of through line from, say, I'm fine down to um, you forever, be it um, 
her message throughout. I think she is very um, steady and steadfast in her articulation and in the stories that she shares. And I think that she uses such a great colloquial language in her lyrics. And I think that she shows um, images that anyone can really see themselves in, whether it's, you know, her going back to an ex-partner or seeing that they're scrolling on her timeline on social media or else, you know, feeling guilty or feeling anxious about going to someone's birthday party because they don't know what they would say to people there and to not write a long text message and stuff like that. I think that they're such universal and such um, easy things to see yourself in. And I think that that can be such an inviting and welcoming aspect to an album that really brings you in sonically then I mean I was reading an interview with her in Loud and Quiet uh, Gemma Samways interviewed her and it was a, a brilliant read um, and you know Gemma obviously mentions that she can hear black skinhead and um, Taylor is just like well yeah like I'll hear a song I'll turn to my producer producer and be like I love this song I kind of want to do my own version of that Um, so in that way sonically I don't think it's the most inventive record not at all I mean I was hearing loads of different kind of things that I'd heard before be it a kind of string flourish that was very much like Lana Del Rey's Born to Die um, or like kind of Calvin Harris kind of style production um, on Moody I think it is But I couldn't, I found her really engaging. And this is not an album. I didn't know anything about her. I, like you, Dave, had seen the massive uh, reception to it. Um, Usually that puts me off as well. But once I stuck on and I heard the snarling sub bass of I'm fine, um, I was was really in this world. Um, And actually the outro, um, she does a lot of work with youth theatre. And she does a lot of uh, writing workshops um, with young women. And that is a recording of a girl who is in one of her workshops um, detailing that. Like that is just completely off the bat true. Um, So I, I just think it's really important to have these albums. I don't think it's a case of like there being lauded because they're dealing with these this subject matter and this is a subject matter at the moment that is getting a lot of coverage maybe it's getting maybe it just feels like it's just being elevated a lot more because maybe it's the first time artists I don't want to say female artists are being heard or feel comfortable to say it yes David you have your arm up I have my hand up because I just don't want to lose my train of thought because I have a few things I want to come back with as well well first of all just to clarify I, I don't think for a second that this is exclusively that she is exclusively mm. being lauded because of that I believe that every reviewer who gave this a 10 or a 5 or a 4 or a 7 or an 8 or a 9 liked what they heard on the surface level as well as the subtext level and uh, and the overall thing it represents and the overall time we're living in and look in fairness you can't divorce context I mean like it's it's very very difficult to do that with certain records this is one of those records and I don't think she's just cashing in on anything either I don't think there's anything cynical here I think it's the album that she wanted to make and I think fucking fair play to her for making it um, but I do also think that at the same time you know it's it's it, like I, I'm, I'm doing my usual complaining about Twitter and, and just people fucking like running with a thing and she gives good quote you know and also that's the other thing I want to say was uh, you mentioned Gemma Samways there Gemma Samways for me is like one of the great music writers mm. uh, one of the great UK music writers I fucking love Gemma she's 
absolutely brilliant. If if anyone has never checked out her work, go and do so. She's amazing, yeah. an incredible writer and almost always fucking hits the nail on the head and almost always interviews and covers really interesting stuff. So shout out to Gemma, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, but you mentioned as well that the kind of observations that self-esteem has, you know, the kind of you know, the don't text your ex stuff, the birthday party stuff, whatever. And it's like, got me thinking of, uh, I do this all the time, which is the track that's here halfway through the record. I think it was a single. And that to me is like endemic of my kind of problem with this on the musical level in that I was reminded of the Arlo Parks record, another album that people absolutely loved. And it won the fucking Mercury. And mm. this, by the way, is going to win the Mercury next year, by the way, just so you know, self-esteem is going to win the Mercury or at least be nominated. Like there's no, this is a Mercury Prize album every day of the week for at least nominated in the conversation. Mm. Uh, but I was just brought back to the kind of... The, the pristine and the kind of delicate haziness and the kind of plink plonky stuff. And I was, it's just like, that isn't for me. And like, in fairness, listen, I don't, I, I, I don't think for a second I was going to get 13 uh, versions of How Can I Help You? And I wouldn't want that. Mm. I wouldn't want the ferocious drumming and propulsive punk song, 13 tracks, whatever. She has range, she shows it. I just felt that it was kind of too much of a melange much like when I went to see Dune last week and I was like, yeah, I can appreciate what this is and everything, but I'm just, I'm not connecting to it. And in fairness, mm. listen, I'm not the target audience here. And like the last thing I want to do here, Zara, is as a woman, you, but obviously the context of this record, you've kind of talked about it already. I'm curious as to what it kind of meant to you on that level, because it sounds like it really did speak to you. Um, just first on the, what, what you were saying about the um, comparison to Arlo Parks, I think that um, I can't remember the phrase just there that you used to describe that song, but I think that that's just a show of vulnerability from her. It's not um, a, a, a twitchy kind of thing at all, or or I can't remember exactly what you're saying, but I just think that that's like a very earnest show of vulnerability from her. And I really welcome that because it gave range to the the driving beat. Um, I really enjoyed this as well because, you know, a lot of the time people I think I, I you know you see people talk about this like Laura Snape's in her review or or maybe Gemma Samways and her talking about empowerment of women and I think that outside of it being a huge um album of empowerment of women I think it's just um Rebecca Lucy Taylor just in, for the first time maybe in her life when she reaches her 30s actually enjoying being a woman because be you know you listen to her lyrics you read interviews with her um there's a line in the album where it's like all you have to do is look nice in your dress darling or something like that and that is something that a tour uh, someone on her tour with slow club actually said to her um so it's exhausting. It's exhausting listening to men like that, in, with especially in the music industry, and to hear someone be brave enough to describe these experiences and you know not shy down from that, and also to be happy in herself to show that there's great celebration of being a woman. And I, one of the things that I loved about the album as well is the use of the kind of gospel choir to really bring forth that sense of unity and collectivism um, and I just thought it was great um, it was an album I didn't expect to really to like a lot I mean it's not I don't think an all an all-time classic and um, there's definitely flaws and I think that that is as I was saying earlier just how a lot of the soundscapes are ones that I felt quite familiar with already 
But at the end of the day, I think her message and what she's doing and what she could do for audiences is so important that I kind of, it overrided that a bit for me. So I respect the hell out of this album. I didn't love it. It's a six for me, but you know, I will go back to it. Maybe, Mm. maybe this is one of those weeks. Uh, Can I ask you for a score on this? Yeah. Um, As I said, kind of outlining everything, I think for me, it's a seven and a half. All right. Well, it's interesting that we talk about uh, empowerment of women, especially going into this top five that we're in, because we're talking about the horror movie genre now in a minute, uh, which sometimes does and often doesn't empower women. So I'm curious as to see what what well we'll be drawing from on this one. And before we get into the top five, uh, I know you've been, you know, it is, we're coming to the end of October. Uh, I know you've been kind of delving into the, the world of horror. Uh, how are you generally, would you say, with w- with the scarier aspect of cinema? Was I'm an absolute was <laughs> I can't I can't do it. Um, I couldn't even watch beyond episode two of Squid Game. Um, I was too afraid. But a lot of the horror that I watch is seventies kind of horror films. So they're atmosphere not, over yeah yeah they're not too scary. And any kind of show of blood or guts, they look quite plastic. So I'm actually okay with that. Um, I did watch Hereditary recently, and it absolutely terrified me um and I was seeing particular scenes for days afterwards um and I know you're a big horror fan yeah absolutely do you Um, like gore no not really um if I ever did I certainly you know got desensitized to it or like got bored of it like I'm not a big fan of the zombie genre for example Mm. um I like there are some great zombie films but it's Mm. not really what I like to go to because it's kind of it's a bit one note you can only do so much with it uh even with all the kind of oh, it's really about capitalism kind of subtext. It's like, yeah, Grand Cooley can kind of only redo that once. And then, you know, uh, not not a big gore fan. No, can take it. Sure. But like, you know, uh, use it in the right ways or whatever. Um, but I do love a good horror. Um, I've said before on the show, probably like the Blair Witch Project continues to freak me out and frighten I've me. still that, not done it. Uh, you really should. Uh, that won't be on my list because there is no music in that film. So there is no score for that movie, of course. But um, yeah, so it's it's top five horror movie scores. How did you find putting yours together? Was this like a like a like a big deep dive? I had mine done pretty fast. I just want to let you know that right now. Yeah, you absolutely shook me when <laughs> you not literally. Um, you texted from me from afar via text. Yeah, <laughs> I think we settled on this uh, top five. Last Friday, I was maybe? like un- unusually ahead of myself for yeah, once, and I, and, last... and I credit Zara to uh, to that end. By the way, she really pushed me in this direction. So, thank you. Um, and then the next day, you're like, "I have my audio clipped and all sorts." I was like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> um, I had definitely ideas for one or two, maybe three songs um, that I have been obsessed with for a while. Um. And I was just looking for any kind of opportunity, which I guess is why I was really uh, hammering this home team. Like, please. On the um, ball, yeah. But I did actually find it kind of difficult to like find um, a score that I really liked and like would stand by. I didn't want to just throw something in for the sake of it. So 
That's good. That's the attitude that we want from anyone doing a top five on this show. Um, I should say as well, uh, number one, I guess spoilers where we follow for all these horror films we're going to talk about. So maybe just like tread carefully as a listener if you want to. Yeah. I'm not setting out to spoil stuff, but you know, nothing's on the, nothing's off the table here. Um, also, yeah, it's like we kind of debated very, very briefly on this. Should it be called top five horror movie songs? Should it be called horror movie music, horror movie themes, scores? Is what we kind of went with in the end. Ultimately, we will be picking, I guess, well, I know I will, I presume you will as well, the predominant themes music-wise of the thing but I, I think you know I want to kind of highlight the overall score where possible as well so it's a catch-all term and we'll start with Zara who is famous for introing oh, top fives with with, with with such smoothness that uh, we'll put no pressure on you gonna have you kick off the top five this week Zara Hedeman's fifth best horror movie score example take it away Zara um Adam you're a sonic architect as is the protagonist in the film that I have chosen for my number five, who uh, has to hear a lot of spooky shit in his job. So that was um, the eternally eerie uh, sounds of a broadcast and a song called Our Darkest Sabbath from the 2012 film Barbarian Sound Studio, directed by Peter Strickland. Um, Must confess, this is a film I only saw a couple of days ago for the first time, but I have been listening to the soundtrack for a a while, um, ever since I kind of got into broadcast a couple of years ago. they are the quintessential spooky band and um, they fuse electronic with found kind of recordings and um, there's a lot of kind of psychedelia in there as well and amongst them is the most beautiful vocals of Trish Keenan, rest in power. Um, they have always been regarded as a film who or a band who would just be perfect for soundtracking a horror film I think that one of their things as well when they would record was that they were always kind of thinking of fictitious horror films that they would be scoring when they were composing music um, and they started to work with Peter Strickland on this one and unfortunately Trish Keenan passed away in the middle of the recording um, she died of uh, pneumonia from complications after contract H1N1 um, which is always really sad because just the potential that they had for you know the years to come um, yeah this I just think is the spookiest um, chilling music it works so well within the context of the film the film is Toby Jones plays a engineer and he has been brought over to Italy to work on a sort of giallo film and um, there's times where it's kind of like on the nose that he's working on like a Suspiria-esque film there's even like one bit have you seen this film Dave? I have seen this film yeah yes. there's like one bit where like they're they're bringing in people to record bits and they're like the goblin is here now and it's like oh very good um it's a very vibey film, I feel. Would you agree? I would, yeah. And you get stuff like, you know, he's 
lifting up watermelons, is it? And like smashing yeah. them on the ground for the squelch sound effect of someone getting stabbed and that kind of thing. Like, like Sonic Architect Adam needs to see this movie. I'm not suggesting yeah. that Adam wants to score a horror movie anytime soon, but nonetheless, it does take you literally into that kind of cavernous area that he's in. And of course, he's driven mad by the experience, isn't he? Yeah. Um, but I actually find that really... Um, it changed my listening experience then to the soundtrack because you hear like these really horrible, grotesque, like <laughs> kind of things. Sorry, that probably sounds absolutely disgusting. <laughs> um, but like you hear these like really sore sounding, aggressive thoughts and you're like, oh, but it's just a watermelon. Um, yeah, I had so many different um, songs that I wanted to or could have chosen for this particular uh uh, piece for Brain Sound Studio but I just thought that this was kind of a mixture of the really pastoral kind of um, aspects to the film and also the really eerie um, kind of very uh, claustrophobic kind of nature of it too so that is my number five David. Nicely done. Um, Thank you. So your your choice there is a film from 2012 that calls back to the films of the 70s I guess and kind of maybe th- like th- th- that kind of area. My choice for number five for me is a 2014 film that calls back to the films of the 1980s. Take it away. health song says smart Alec sonic architect Adam Shanahan it is not health it is in fact disaster piece okay and it's taken from it follows that is the title theme of the film uh, Richard Vreeland is better known as disaster piece for his uh, for his music uh, he worked in a video game called Fez and the director of it follows David Robert Mitchell liked his work so much he called him up and was like please work on my cool horror film and he did and the rest is a fantastic soundtrack uh, it follows have you seen this film Zara I have not. Okay, well, I would like you to check it out. Um, Around this time, I think, the kind of early to mid-tens, and certainly now it continues, um, a lot of horror movie directors, a lot of independent horror movie directors around the world, particularly in the US, would begin to lean into a very John Carpenter-esque vibe in their films. I'm thinking of stuff like The Guest and lots of others. Um, you know, kind of cool 80s synth became, you know, du jour again. And, you know, I think maybe we've definitely hit saturation point. I watched a horror film there earlier this year called Come True, which wasn't very good. Has a fucking insane ending that doesn't work. Um, and it is littered with this kind of 80s aesthetic, like, you know, the neon stuff and yada, yada, yada. Now, I think even when It Follows came out, it was beginning to become just slightly on the cuff of grading. However, I think it follows captures it incredibly well. I think this film is a, has a wonderful atmosphere throughout and how it's shot and the the incredible music from from a disaster piece here. It tells the story of a young girl who um basically there's like a demon thing and it's like it's transmitted through sex essentially and like essentially the way it works is uh a guy sleeps with her and then she wakes up and she's tied to a chair and he's like do you see it? Do you see it? And she's like, no, what are you talking about? And he's like, he's like, you've got like, you've got to pass this on. You've got to pass this thing on. Otherwise it's going to get you. And it's basically like, there's like, there's a thing and it can manifest in different ways and forms of different people. And it's following her and it's going to get her. 
and she, and that's the film. And it's like there, there are scenes in this movie when like they're just sitting around and there's like someone in the very far distance kind of walking slowly towards them and you're like, oh fuck, is that, is that it? Um, I think it's an incredible horror film. I absolutely love it. It is dripping in atmosphere, like I say. Um, it's one of my favourite films of, like, like, of this kind of like genre of the last kind of seven, eight years, whatever it's been since it's come out. And I remember when I saw it, um, I went to see it, I think I said before on the show or maybe on the Ox Chord that like, I used to go to therapy uh, out in Swords when I was living in Drada. So I'd get the bus up, I'd go to therapy and then afterwards, uh, if there was a film on nearby, I would go and see a film as like my kind of post-therapy treat, essentially. Um, I saw Interstellar there in the cinema one day and I just fucking bawled my eyes out crying during that big emotional moment in the middle. It was unbelievable. But It Follows was another one of these films that I saw in this kind of vein. And I remember leaving the cinema and it was dark and it was cold. And I was a bit shook up by the movie. And I remember just standing there waiting for like my bus. And all the people around me suddenly took on this extra like terrifyingness to them because I was just like this film this film makes you afraid of like a like a complete stranger on the street or like walking back in Drada one, one night like listening to the soundtrack walking down the street you know people coming towards me listen to this a full blast and just really really got me uh let's take another clip from it this is a, this is kind of like a recurring motif in it which draws on kind of classic horror spikes but I'll give you another example of when the tension really kind of mounts in this one Adam hit me uncomfortable there did you not enjoy that terrifying that was really (laughs) scary I wouldn't be listening to that walking especially at night or anything after a cinema or by a bus stop I'm telling you man it follows make sure you get it watched before Halloween if you get the chance it's great and that's my number five Amazing. Well, it sounds like um, the woman in that film, It Follows, if she was possessed by a demon seed, it sounds like she might need an exorcism. Tubular Bells Part 1 by Mike Oldfield, of course, from the 1973 classic um, William Friedkin's The Exorcist. A film that scared the shit out of me when I watched it last year for the very first time. Uh, Max von Sydow, um, who else? Ellen Bernstein's in there, Linda Blair. Obviously about a little girl who has been possessed and two Catholic priests are trying to rescue her through exorcism. What could possibly go wrong? Um, This, uh, obviously, Tudor Bells is a 26 minute long tune. It's a bit of an opus. It's an absolute jam. So the story actually of how William Friedkin came to use Mike Oldfield's composition, a song he recorded when he was 19 absolutely sickening um all kind of came about by chance actually so um composer Lalo Schifrin I hope I'm pronouncing his name 
correctly, he had worked on a score for the film, but it was rejected by Friedkin. Um, apparently, there was six minutes of music for the initial film trailer, but audiences were reportedly too scared by its combination of sights and sound. Um, and the uh, Friedkin's boss was just like, or the Warner Brothers executives were just like, no, this is too scary. You have to tone it down because we need dollar and um, we've got to sell tickets to the exorcist and so he scratched it and um apparently the music that was originally supposed to be used for the exorcist was recycled for the amityville horror now i it's never been confirmed or denied um and this came about then by chance. Uh, Friedkin was in the office of Ahmed Ertkin, who was the president of Atlantic Records, who distributed Cheater Bells in the US. And he picked up the record and just kind of put it on the record. And so is history. But um, there's some great quotes from Mike Oldfield about The Exorcist. Uh, it took him a long time to watch the film after it was released because he was famously like, I'm a bit of a wuss like myself. He's like, I'm a bit of a wuss. I can't really do horror. So he didn't watch it until about 10 years after it came out. And of course, he was then on Virgin Records. Big Richard Branson was his boss, ostensibly. And he was, Mike Oldfield was so dissatisfied by his label that in one of his records, Amarak, he has uh, Morse code in it and he hid a message for uh, Richard Branson. This is absolutely amazing. Um, he has he hid a message in Morse code in one of the songs on Amarack that spelt out fuck off or be. Fucking hell. That's, amazing. I mean, like the, it's a level of pettiness that I can only hope to aspire to someday. <laughs> That's genuinely incredible. Um, I know The Exorcist is, is a famous film critic, Mark Kermode's favourite film. He references it all the time. Um, really? I'm not sure, this is sacrilege, but I'm not sure I've ever actually watched it start to finish. It's one of those films that you experience through osmosis as a youngster. It's always on. And I was terrified I was terrified of the poster I was terrified of the image of Regan in Empire Magazine I was terrified of little snippets you'd see on like whatever film Barry Norman film 94 or whatever the fuck was showing at the time Um, if they would do like you know oh The Exodus is out now on VHS or something like I mean like I've I, I, I know the film I know the entire plot I know the music I know the atmosphere I know it all but I don't know if I've ever actually sat down and watched it start to finish when was the last time that you did that? I saw for the very first time last Halloween. So for last October when we started doing the horrors. Did it scare you? David, I was <laughs> petrified. And like watching it obviously in a dark room. And there's a handful of scenes in that film and like set pieces that are like, you know, they're coming. But even when they happen, you're just like shaking. Like there was times during like watching all the scary movies last year and not so much actually this year I think I've just gotten into the rhythm of it um but I would be afraid to go upstairs to go to the bathroom and I think after The Exorcist was one of those films that did that to me well maybe I'll pluck up the courage but in the meantime we're going underground for my next pick we're going deep deep underground
So I wanted to pick some music that wasn't just traditionally horror in the way that we heard some of the It Follows stuff there. This is from the film The Descent from 2005, a film I've been trying to get Zara to watch for weeks, uh, directed by Neil Marshall. The composer is a man called David Julian, who actually uh, is best known for being Christopher Nolan's composer for his first few films before being fucking kicked to the Hans Zimmer curb. Uh, David Julian worked on Memento, Following and Insomnia. And as a matter of fact, Neil Marshall loved the score to Insomnia so much that he was like, can I get that guy for my horror film? Uh, The film The Descent was already made at this point. David Julian was drafted in and added this incredible majesty to it that you heard in that music there. That music for me could be on the score to The Last of the Mohicans. Like it has that kind of uh, incredible, just... just beautiful regal nature to it so for anyone who doesn't know and this film is on netflix right now by the way and i would highly encourage anybody to go and see it i saw it in the cinema in 2005 and i was fucking terrified um the descent is a film about six cave divers um a, a tragedy happens to one of them and months on uh, friends get together and they're like, let's try and do something. Let's try and do something kind of to to kind of shake all this bad stuff off. And they decide to go cave diving. Uh, six women of very different kind of stripes and kind of very different kind of uh, disciplines. And, you know, some of them are like more adventurous than others and yada, yada, yada. Um, and basically, like you spend a lot of time in this film. It's not a very long film. It's like an hour 40. You spend a lot of time with these characters before it all goes bad. It's a horror film, so you know things are going to go bad. And that's one of the things that David Gillian said in an interview I read with him. He was saying that, like, an audience knows. He was like, they, they, they know that what they're paying their money for. They know they're paying for a horror film. They know it's going to go bad. But he thinks one of the reasons why the film works is because of it spending that first half with them and getting to know them that well. And he himself makes the point that, like, one of the biggest jump scares in the film doesn't even have score over it. There, there is, there are jump scares. I think, I'm not a fan of jump scares. I think they're generally quite earned. And sometimes they are punctuated by kind of sharp stings and stuff. But the music in this film, particularly as the narrative develops, I think elevates it to an incredible level not just in horror but as a great film uh, i think it I, I think it suits the characters i think it supports what's happening on the screen and it's not distracting despite the fact that you heard it there it is it's 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 very big it's very kind of broad mm. and like it's not something you would necessarily associate with a fucking cave diving horror film mm. but that tonal thing i think somehow fits together perfectly well I think David Julian is a terrifically underrated composer. The last kind of quote-unquote big film he worked on, if I have this correct, I think was The Cabin in the Woods in 2012. It's kind of terrifying that that film's almost 10 years old, by the way, but that's another story. But uh, yeah, the guy deserves better. Christopher Nolan, man. Bring him back. Come that's on. That's unbelievable. Because like, even that, set, that clip of that music is Zimmer-esque, like... Yeah, yeah. Although it you know, it has that same kind of power behind it. Yeah, but um, unlike unlike Hans Zimmer, David Julian probably composed it himself. Though you know, he probably didn't like farm it out to oh. some to some industry grunt in his massive team of people. I like Hans Zimmer. The Interstellar soundtrack is a work of art. But come Hans on, Hans Zimmer, welcome on the podcast anytime. anytime. <laughs> <laughs> please watch the, the please add the descent to the It Follows list. I know, like you're a fiend. I know you're a fiend for vintage horror. You don't yeah. trust a horror post the year two thousand, whatever. But you love Barbarian Sound Studio. So take my recommendation on on these two films and you as well, listener. The Descent. It's great. And the first big scare in that film. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It is incredible. (laughs) See, I just don't do well with that. I don't do well with that. It's earned, though. Um, It's earned. David. Hello. Can you give me 
two words that you think are probably up there with the worst in the world. Uh, what? Like in like in general? Uh, yeah. Spiders. Oh God. No. Have you fucked up the intro, Zara? You were doing no, so I well. No, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. Two words that are the worst in the world. Amongst them, yeah. Uh, mass genocide. I, I don't know where you're going with this. Not far off. Sorry, just before we get to, to Zara revealing what this is for everybody, uh, I just th- we had a brief, almost Frank Ocean reference off mic there. Uh, happy birthday, Frank Ocean. It's his birthday on the day that we're recording this. So happy birthday, Frank. Patrons to the show, uh, along with Kid Cuddy and Kanye West. Now, Zara, please yeah. explain this laboured intro that I fell prey to. Um, so that was an absolutely beautiful piece of music called Love With Fun, composed by Riz Ortolani. For the 1980 film entitled Cannibal Holocaust. Okay, I now understand what you're talking about. I I did not peg you as a cannibal holocaust kind of gal, but please, please continue. In your own time, Zara, in your own time. Um, uh, Full disclosure, I actually have not seen this film. It's the one on my list that I haven't seen, but I have listened to the soundtrack kind of ad nauseum. Can I hazard a guess here as to why? Does Paddy Hanna have anything to do with this? I fucking knew it. Explain. Yeah. I interviewed Paddy um, around the time of his album The Hill coming out last year. Yeah, so did we. We did a track by track. Go back and listen to it. Yeah, that was a brilliant episode. Um, As you know, David, he is a great interviewee. Um, He loves 70s horror in particular. Um. And he told me about uh, Riz Ortolani and he put me onto this soundtrack. And after interviewing him, my curiosity was so um, insatiable that I, as soon as I got in the door, I turned on the the soundtrack for Cannibal Holocaust. And it's been love at first sight ever since. And especially with this song. What a sentence. <laughs> what a quote. I know, sorry. Um, it's a good thing you don't. Uh, title the episodes anymore um sorry loves cannibals but um yeah I just think that this is such a striking piece of music because as you hear there it has a a real buoyancy and it's a real floaty number with those gorgeous strings and the interesting kind of sing synth accompaniment um there's not really a whole lot I tried to dig into stories about um how the score came about um what inspired Ortolani there's not much that I found um other than you know just people like celebrating the kind of juxtaposition of it um to the scenes of horrendous violence obviously that film is extremely controversial um and was banned in a number of countries because of um, the rumours of several actors actually being killed on screen. Um, I think they killed, I think they killed animals. animals. Yeah, I, I think they definitely did yeah. that. Yeah. But there was um, one thing I did find was uh, your boy, Faris from The Horrors. 
he was interviewed by The Quietest uh, a couple of years ago, actually, for his soundtrack work for Peter Strickland's uh, The Duke of Burgundy. And he chose, um, I think it was for the Baker's Dozen feature that they have, where you have to pick like 12 albums that you really love. And he chose a Cannibal Holocaust soundtrack. And it was because there were the rumours that it was an actual snuff film. And he also shared the the bit that the actors who died, or the actors who quote unquote died in the film had actually died and they had all their contracts wait wait they had in the, all their contracts that they were to avoid public appearances for a year so that people would actually think that they were potentially dead um so it's pretty intense but you know when you listen to that really beautiful orchestral piece you can't help but get swept in yeah, it's like it's it's too beautiful for that kind of film, though, which, again, is like I love I do love I've never seen the film either. It never really mm. appealed to me um, for a lot of reasons, including the reports of, you know, animal cruelty and such. Um, mm. But yeah, like I do love the juxtaposition. I do love mm. the well, how could you possibly put some beauty over, you know, terror in that kind of way? So, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't think I'd be saying this about Cannibal Holocaust, but nicely done, Zara. Um my number three this week. So, you know, I'm often accused, often by Zara, of being someone who uh, I enjoy my pop culture in a more modern way. Zara, of course, is a big fan of old films, old music, all that kind of stuff, vintage era things. So how about we go back as far as 1987 for my number three? <laughs> That is, of course, the incomparable work of Christopher Young on the horror film Hellraiser from 1987. I knew I recognised it! I thought you might. I know that you've seen this film relatively recently. Yeah. Uh, Hellraiser is, of course, a film, an incredible horror film directed by Clive Barker based on uh, his own novella, The Hellbound Heart. This, of course, is a film that would launch a franchise Pinhead being the lead kind of figure. Uh, there's like 10 Hellraiser films or something ridiculous. Only the first two are really worth really going to. And Remind me again of the online one. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a Hellraiser <laughs> film called Hellraiser Hellworld. And the tagline is, evil goes online. Uh, Henry Cavill is in that movie. So is Lance Henriksen. Swear to God. Superman. Two Hellraiser films were released on the same day in 2005 on DVD. That was one of them. The other one was called Hellraiser Deader. So the first one, however, is deadly in lots of different ways. Uh, Incredible film. Really, like, cheap and done dirty. Uh, Dirty deeds done cheap, I suppose you could say. And uh, tells the story of the Cenobites. They are a sadomasochistic demon group. Well, Demons to some, angels to others. Um, essentially, there's a puzzle box that gets solved. They come and get you. They take you to hell and tear you apart. It's all very bad. But, it's, you know, Clyde Barker wrote this about, you know, kind of sadomasochism and just all kinds of societal influences as well. Uh, it, Stephen King was a huge fan. He said, I've seen I've seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Didn't quite turn out that way. Clyde Barker's been involved in all kinds of projects over the years, including writing 
more stuff in relation to the Cenobites. Like there was the Scarlet Gospels book a few years ago. But Hellraiser is one of those films where, and as a matter of fact, um, Will, he is the poster boy for this episode. So I have in fact gone with that as our, as our episode image for this week. And that image, can I just say, maybe maybe we all have one of these, but growing up, like the local video shop, you know, you're, you're, you're wanting to rent out the latest fucking Bugs Bunny movie or whatever, you're 10 years of age, you take a turn, you walk into the horror section, and there is a giant standee of Pinhead from Hellraiser. <gasps> Even the image alone... For so many years, I couldn't take it's it. terrifying. I couldn't handle it. I love the film, though. It's so flawed. It's mm. so, like, it's it's held together by sellotape. But much like the music here by Christopher Young, um, and Clyde Barker actually wanted a band called Coil to do the score, but apparently the studio were like, no, no, get a proper composer. And so they got Christopher Young, who did it, worked wonders. I think his score is so otherworldly. It's so ornate and elaborate. And it, it basically tells you even beyond the film itself, that there are there are things out there. There are there are there are there are doors that maybe should not be opened, but you kind of want to open them. It has that kind of playfulness to it, it has that kind of mm. eeriness to it. It's 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 kind of unconventional, much like the last thing we heard, and that to me gives it so much more power. What do you think of this film, Zara? I absolutely loved this film so much. Um I um really good like I'm this isn't like a, a humble brag or anything like this but I'm weirdly good at missing the plots to certain like massive films say like Hellraiser or The Godfather I'd know well I had a vague idea of what goes on The Godfather um I missed Hotline Bling for years so I have a talent for just big things just falling under my radar and Hellraiser was one of them where I just had no idea what to expect. I didn't expect there to be the like American English kind of duality there. Um, it's a much smaller film in terms of the world than I expected. Like it basically 90% of the act- action, uh, quite literally in this film takes place within one house. Yeah. Um, I loved how like, Cronenberg-esque the um, effects were like the kind of gore of this film is very it reminded me a lot of say The Fly um, and just like how it looks quite fake and like rubbery and stuff Um, but I absolutely loved every scene that Hellraiser and what are the other characters called? Well they're called the Cenobites I mean like he's he's called lead Cenobite in the film the name Pinhead was applied to him after the the design that kind of stuff and Mm. barely in it as well like barely in the movie in it for like Mm, probably a running total of like less than 10 minutes but or maybe maybe even less than that but just has such an incredible presence and that is like less is more I mean leave it leave it to your imagination and allow music like this to kind of sweep you away so that's my number three what's your number two that's an excellent number three um my number two um is one that has uh, already featured actually in a no encore top five but it is so good that i couldn't resist
Yeah, so that was um, Italian prog rockers Goblin with the theme to Dario Argento's Suspiria. Um, this, I was doing my research uh, before I came on to do this show with you, David, and I listened to your episode last year for top five scary f- songs that yourself and Craig did an absolutely sublime job on. So much so that when I was walking home after work listening to it, um, while it was still bright out, actually, I jumped a number of times at your picks. So <laughs> uh, it, thanks very sorry, much. Was it Come to Daddy by Aphex Twin that oh, got Jesus. you? It was Come to Daddy. It was also the... Eyes Wide Shut tune that yeah, was in there. The, the chanting. Um, the the Scott Walker thing. one with the Daffy Duck impression. It all got me. It all got me. Um, yeah, but I was absolutely devastated when I heard that this was actually your number two. Um but was not surprised because, you know, such great taste. Well, it's been a year. It can come back it's on been the a show. Year. Uh, but I couldn't not have this in my list because I absolutely love this song. I think it is so hypnotic. It's so magical. Um, the twinkling juxtaposed with that really hollow uh, percussive beat um, and then all the weird like growling and snarls and whispers and then the shouting of which it's just... It does everything in one song and it has so many emotions in one song. And I just have, it always conjures like a kind of medieval kind of scene to me. Um, I always just imagine like loads of people around a fire in a kind of Robin Hood-esque town just jamming to this song. Um, Yeah. And every, and actually, David. Yes, Sarah. Um, Suspiria 1977 versus Suspiria 2018, which do you prefer? Well, we did an entire episode on this on No Popcorn with Dahio Droni representing Suspiria 20... Is it 18, I thought? 18, possibly? yeah. Uh, 1977 all the way. Uh, yeah, I know same. I know that you and I know that David Tapley recently watched Suspiria 2018 and kind of eviscerated it, much like <laughs> some of the characters in that film. Um, I... Oh. I think it's got a lot going for it, but I think mm. it can't even come close to what the original has. And so much of that as well is is atmosphere. And my God, even I was delighted when you put this on, but I was a bit spooked. I was. Yeah, I am. Yeah, it is scary. Like it's it certainly kind of creeps up behind you. And that was one thing that Argento told um, Goblin when they were like writing this. He said, I need the audience to feel that the witches are still there, even when they're not actually on the screen. And I think that this song so perfectly captures that kind of um, bewitching quality and that kind of spookiness that they could just pop up anywhere. I am always really surprised. I've listened to a couple of podcasts about Suspiria 1977. One that you've recommended to me, and I really enjoy this podcast, How to Survive. Oh yeah, the the, the UK one, yeah. Yeah, and the guys don't like this at all. They much prefer the 2018 one. Because they're wrong, they're wrong, I'm sorry. I know, but like, it's, it's very upsetting. Nonsense. But I was listening to one actually last night and um, there's a podcast called 70 Millimeter that I quite like. It's an American one. There's three guys hosting it and um, they were talking about Spirit 1977 and one of them just really didn't like this. But the one thing that 
reclaimed it was the music to it. And he was like, well, this film is just like carried by the music and the aesthetic, like the colours and the vibrancy of the colours in this film. Otherwise, it's a pretty like, you know, bland and boring film. And then one of them, and I immediately thought of you when he said this, he was just like, to me? Goblin are better than the Beatles. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Excellent. Right. Uh, excellent choice. Wonderful stuff. Check out Suspiria 1977 if you never had. Check out everything that we're recommending on this episode. To be fair, it's all gold. Number two for me this week. Um, it's time to go to 1999. Summertime for humanity, of course. But nightmare time for me. I'm dealing with elegance here, you know, rather than a rather than a like a a bludgeoning. Although this is kind of a baroque bludgeoning, perhaps. Mm. Uh, this is the music from the film Audition. Audition is a Japanese horror film from 1999. Uh, composer is Koji Endo. Um, there's not a lot of literature out there on Koji Endo for some strange reason. I don't know why. And like even accessing this score is not readily available in a lot of places like it's not on your streaming platforms i found this on youtube it's kind of the lead theme from the film audition are you familiar with the film auditions era i think i remember you talking about this film i think we were having a pint a while ago and you told me about audition maybe a bit like loosely about its premise and it sounded quite terrifying it's a wonderful film uh, i think it's five stars and it's kind of one of those ones where like it's like I remember at the time, like, buying, like, Tartan Asia Extreme DVDs, like, going up to, like, Forbidden Planet in Dublin and, like, you know, buying, like, Ringu and Battle Royale and that kind of stuff. And this was one of them. And Audition's poster generally kind of gives the game away a little bit, to a degree. Wow. Um, which is kind of unfortunate in a way because it's actually a very, very moody film in which not a lot happens, but then some stuff does. And essentially the film, for anyone who's never seen it before, is about a widower. Uh, whose son suggests that he find a new wife. Uh, He agrees and with a friend stages a phony audition process for a film that doesn't exist to meet a potential new partner in life. He interviews several women. One of them uh, turns out to be someone who he is kind of besotted by. She responds well to him. They begin to date. But something is going on beneath the surface. And I don't want to say too much more about it for anyone who has somehow gone the last 22 years and never seen this film. But it is, it'll stay with you. And it has stayed with me for a very long amount of time. I revisited it, I think about a year ago. It lost none of its power. I think it's a really kind of beautiful tragedy. Like there's a lot more going on than just the kind of highlights and the headlines that come out of it. And the music is definitely one aspect of that. There's a wonderful sensitivity to this. There's a beautiful, like I said, there's a beautiful tragedy. There's a melancholy here as well. It, it humanizes the characters even when things occur that are completely inhuman. And also, Zara, you'd be delighted to know that I think after Mulholland Drive, it might have the second best jump scare in film history. Uh, It's not a jump scare film, but there is a jump scare. And much like Mulholland Drive, which, you know, has one jump scare, you won't forget it in a hurry. But it's an incredible film. um, And I highly recommend people check it out, if only to experience the score. 
but it will absolutely, absolutely haunt you. And that's what this is about. That's what this top five is about. It is, yeah. I'm, I'm scared even at the thought of it. David. Hello, Zara. Yes. If I was to uh, ask you to finish the following sentence, could you please finish it for me? I'll try. Okay. All work and no play makes Dave a... Dull boy. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> just saying they're um, absolutely bone chilling stuff there that is the main title for from The Shining by Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind on uh, vocal duties there um, anytime I watch The Shining and I will never forget the very first time I watched it when I was about 17 and I was just being a precocious brave boots trying to think that nothing in the world would scare me and I watched that with the curtains closed during the winter time and I don't think I slept for a couple of days um, and part of that was because of that score um, it does so much with such restraint um, obviously it is a kind of reinterpretation of Oh God, I'm going to mess this pronunciation up. Dees is Ray, Ray. Um, a section from Symphony Fantastique by Hector Berlioz. Um, Wendy Carlos is one of the greatest pioneering musicians and composers who is best known for, I guess, Switched on Bach, the 1968 album in which she uh, performed a lot of Johann Sebastian Bach's music on a Moog synthesizer, um, an instrument which um, she was integral in giving advice and pointers to in the development of the synthesizer. Um, she met Robert Moog um, in, I think, the early or late mid 60s, and they worked together to build this synthesizer, which has been, as we know, such an important and um, well used instrument. I just love this so much. Um, it really builds um, and heightens the isolation, I think, of um, the Great Northern. No, the Great Northern is in Twin Peaks, the Overlook Hotel. The Overlook, yes. That's yeah, the one. sorry. Um, it really emphasizes the remoteness, I guess, of it, because with those like absolutely terrifying like vocals from Rachel Elkins, they feel like spectral uh, entities just hovering and appearing out of nowhere. And I'm actually home alone at the moment, and I'm really annoyed that once this Zoom call is done, I'll just have those sounds in my head and will be terrified to go upstairs to go to the bathroom. I'm sure you'll um, be completely fine. Wait, what's that behind you? Sorry, there's something moving in the um. Day <laughs> okay, so listen, uh, The Shining is amazing. Uh, and I did pick this for my top five initially, but I bumped it and I hoped and I prayed that Zara would pick it and she 
has. So it's all worked out perfectly. Uh, I haven't seen this film since I saw it on the big screen in the IFI back in, I want to say 2014, because I remember still being in hot press. I remember like finishing a shift and being like, I'm off to The Shining. I'm pretentious. Um, And it was like the European cut or something. So there was an extra 20 minutes or whatever. So I saw it in the IFI on the big screen, having never seen it in the cinema before. And yes, that opening with this music, it just transports you to another place, a very dangerous place. And I remember watching the film. I remember like, I remember the scene when Danny's going around on this tricycle around the corner, like around all the corridors. And I remember sitting there, and I'll never forget this. I remember sitting there and I remember like to myself and like, this is, I'm going to sound so fucking lame here, but I don't care. Uh, I basically said to myself, I was like, oh God, I was like, they just don't make them like this anymore. It felt so special to be seeing it on a big screen. I felt like I was in the fucking seventies or the eighties whenever it came out. I was like, this is just unbelievable. And yeah, it's astonishing. Although I will say there was a hilarious moment when spoilers for The Shining. I assume everyone's seen The Shining, but spoilers. A, a, a sub character, a, a minor character in a subplot. Uh, gets killed in the film and there's this outrageous build-up. I really think Stanley Kubrick was 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 genuinely planting the seeds for a very dark joke because it goes on for so long, the build-up of this guy coming to the hotel. There's even more of it in the extended cut. And he gets there and gets a fucking axe to the chest immediately. And I figured everyone in the cinema has seen this film before. There was an old man sitting like three fucking, two seats next to me and he was like, Aah! like when it <laughs> happened. And I like, I lost it i was like I, I was like you joke are you kidding me i was like come on it's astonishing film the atmosphere is second to none the music is perfect mm. stephen king is wrong stephen king hates this film he made his own television version of it because yeah. he thought this sucked and it was like come on man that's baffling it's, it's one amazing. of my favorite films um i think jack nicholson is incredible in it and didn't um i'm i didn't get time to go too deep on the um, filming of it, but you might know, Dave. Um, did Stanley Kubrick, because I know he is was known for doing some kind of torture stuff to his lead actors. It, horrendous say, like, to with, Shelley Duvall yeah. by, by all accounts, yeah. Didn't he make her like stay in a kind of very secondary st- style room or like a very like uncomfortable room but Jack was like treated like a king ostensibly or something. I can't, I, I can't verify that but it sounds like something he probably would do by all accounts yeah. he was horrendous to her. I mean the performance is unbelievable but again mm. look listen it was the 70s. Was it the 70s? I think it was the 70s. Is the shine mm. the 70s? No Someone, 80s. It's the 80s. Okay 1980. Right. Okay yeah. well yeah you know depends on your interpretation. Yeah it depends on your interpretation of, uh, of time I suppose. <laughs> Number one for me, though, is timeless. And as a matter of fact, I will say uh, it's, it's, it's a hugely predictable choice, but it's, it's the king. It's the king of the ring. It's the best piece of horror music that exists. And here it is. So, um, it's some time in the 90s. I'm back in my childhood home. My brother is watching Halloween, probably on Halloween night, and I am petrified by what I am seeing on the screen. And I know that I'm experiencing something supernatural, something different, something with incredible power that might just come through the television screen and 
take me away. Uh, John Carpenter's music, John Carpenter, of course, the mastermind behind Halloween, you know, directed it, oversaw every element of the process, including the music. I often find myself coming to that piano and just being like, because you can't separate it, you know, like you can't separate some of these, some of these pieces of music from what they would go on to visualize or at least accompany in a visual sense. But like, can you imagine just coming up with that? Like, it's it's so, I, 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 I can't play piano, so maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds so simple. It sounds like something someone just did one day in an afternoon and in a different context, right? It could be like the most uplifting, charming, cheerful thing ever, but it's not though. It's attached to the embodiment of pure evil. And that's what the original Halloween film is. I recently watched the new one, Halloween Kills. It fucking sucks. It's absolute garbage. It's just a gore fest. Like, they, like they don't like nothing has the power that this has it just has unquenchable power that i can't get over um i rewatched the original halloween i've seen it numerous times of course but i rewatched it last halloween on halloween of course it was the end of my <gasps> my month-long horror run now highly pretentious of me once again but i'm gonna do it i'm gonna quote my own letterboxed review here it's very oh, short oh you love to say it it's very short you i'm just gonna say to that say what it. i what i wrote a year ago after watching this was and i quote legacy goes a long way halloween is clearly tamed by today's standards but few matches for atmosphere music is obviously next level making those final distressingly vacant and paranoid images truly bone chilling as a thousand imitators scream louder because i just think that the more that film goes on and this there's not that much like much like texas chance massacre there's not that much actually in it there's not that much gore there's mm. not that much horrendous violence you know but the power that the images have and the atmosphere and the package is unbelievable adam i have a second clip if you wouldn't mind playing it it's kind of towards the end it's another motif and again i hear this and i'm taken away somewhere else that i don't want to be but i also do want to be there because there's a weird weird supernatural magic to all of this Which makes for like a nice bookend to my top five because it follows. You can see where it completely just lifts that and like distorts it a bit and modernizes it and such. But like you, you, you can't, you can't like, you can recreate it, you can emulate it and you can do it well, but you, you just can't have the weight that this has. And those final scenes in the film, the very end of it, when the theme comes back in and the shots that shows you like the empty street, the shot of the doorway, like all, he could be anywhere and you hear him breathing over the music it's goosebump oh, inducing. It's chills. It's uh, it's just incredible. And John Carpenter is a fucking genius. Mm. Like lifetime pass with this kind of thing, still great, still perfect, pure horror, and I adore it. And that's my number one. And that's our top five. Sarah Hedeman, thank you so so much. I do appreciate it. But of course, the biggest scare that happens in the world is when Adam Shanahan doesn't turn up for work but he does turn up every week and without him we would be lost forever he is our sonic architect master he is the spookiest cat in all of dublin in the best possible way and he guides the show perfectly so yeah much like john carpenter the master of horror adam is the master of audio and the master of no encore so we thank him Truly thoroughly is. for being here tonight and we thank well, you zara um thank you greatly appreciated uh, i hope you'll watch one of the horror films that i recommended i hope everybody who listens to this will check out some of these because i think we've had a 
We've got a very, very strong list and no crossover as well. Yeah. Nice. And I was really nervous that this would be the one where we would cross over on each other a lot. Yeah. Well, look, listen, I mean, we're a very professional unit. And speaking of, Craig Fitzpatrick will be back from his travels next week. And we'll have another horror in the form of the new Ed Sheeran album to review. My name <laughs> is Dave Hanready. This has been No Encore. There will be No Encore. Have an amazing Halloween. We're back next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.